0: We're going to be in James chapter 1 again. We looked at this a few weeks back and wanted to finish this up here. So James chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Well last time we looked at this passage, um, we discussed how this is about um, how we handle the word, hearing the word and responding to the word. Um, but before James specifically talks about receiving the word, he outlines some character qualities that we should all have. And those are in verse 19. Everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. The Bible instructs us in the very area that we are most prone to struggle in. In our flesh, we are prone to do the exact opposite. We are quick to, uh, I'm sorry, slow to hear, we're quick to speak, and we're quick to anger. And besides the obvious relational problems that this can cause with one another, This hinders us from hearing and receiving the word. How can we receive the word if we're slow to hear? How can we receive the word if we're too quick to speak? And how can we receive the word if we are prone to anger when we're confronted by the word? So you see that these character qualities are necessary for every area of life, but are of special importance as it relates to us hearing and receiving the word. And James goes on in verse um, 21 and says, "...in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls." So humility is absolutely vital to being able to receive the word. Pride hinders us from hearing the word and it also hinders the word from implanting in our hearts. And we gave that example of the idea of the soil. A dry, um, cracked soil is not going to receive a seed. You need a moist, a wet soil to be able to receive that seed. And so it is in our hearts. If we're full of pride, we're not going to be able to receive truth but in humility, like the soft soil, we'll be able to receive the word implanted in our hearts, which is able to save our soul. Well, this brings us to the next part of this passage, and um, that is we need to hear the word and we need to receive the word, but it doesn't stop there. It says our hearing of the word needs to move us to respond to the word, to obey. The word, and that's in verses 22 and following. Now this really is a basic and foundational truth in the Bible. It almost seems too simple and too basic, and that is a Christian is one who has heard and received the word and who seeks to obey the word. Another way of putting it is a Christian is one who hears the word, believes the word, and obeys the word. And I say that seems almost too simple. It seems very obvious. Yeah, a Christian is one who hears God's word and obeys it. But that really is the simple message of the Bible. This is what a Christian is. One who hears God's word, believes it, and then walks in obedience to it. This idea of being a doer of the word comes up frequently in scripture. And before we look um, at this passage in James, I want to highlight some of these other passages in Scripture that talk about this idea of being a doer of the Word to show how central this theme is in Scripture. And so there's four passages that we're going to look at, and the first one is in Matthew 25. Actually, all of them will be in the Gospels. But if you want to turn to this first one, Matthew 25, And due to the length of this one, I'm actually not going to read it. I'm going to just kind of refresh your memory, and I think we'll all be familiar with this passage. So Matthew 25, and it's verses 31 through the end of the chapter. And this is the, um, my Bible says, has a little title over it, The Judgment. I think others might say The Sheep and the Goats. Um, there's a few different ways you might remember this passage, but the basic idea is it's a parable of the last day, the day of judgment, and Christ comes and you have the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and he first addresses the sheep and he says to them that when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was in prison, you met, you came, you met my needs, and they responded, Lord. When did we see you in prison? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? And he tells them, to the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And then he turns to the the ones on his left, the goats, and he says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. Those exact same things. You didn't come. You didn't meet my need. You didn't feed me and give me drink. And they ask the same question, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? And he says to them, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these brothers, you did not do it to me. So the main difference that this passage points to um, seems to be the idea of what they did. The, The sheep did something, the goats didn't do something. They saw needs around them and responded, the sheep did, not in a calculated way. And that's very important to realize. This was not just like routine and ritual. This was done from the heart. And we know that because they responded, Lord... When did we do this? They didn't even, in a sense, realize that they had done this because it was coming from their heart. It wasn't this calculated, if I do this good deed, I'm going to earn some merit with God. That wasn't their intention or their motive at all. It was compassion for those who were in need. But the goats, they did nothing. And Jesus highlights in this passage that the main difference between the sheep and the goats is about their actions. And some of you have probably heard this song that Keith Green has about this parable, and it's really not so much a song as it is a story told in music or with him playing the piano. But at the very end of it, I like what he says. The the very last line of that little song, he says, "...the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this scripture is what they did and didn't do. And that's, that's right. Looking just at this parable, and of course we, there's more that we could say about the Christian life than that. But in this parable, the main difference that is highlighted here is the sheep did something and the goats didn't do those same actions. Well, turn back to Matthew chapter 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look at a couple verses here in this one. first one is found in verse 21. So Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So this, this passage is very clear. There is something much more important than outward profession, Right? The one who says, Lord, Lord, that in essence is an outward profession. That's associating themselves with God saying, he's my God. I'm with this one. I believe in this one. But he says, not everyone who says that will enter into heaven. But those who do, do, uh, let's see, let me read it so I don't mess it up here. Um, But he who does the will of my Father You see, it's not just about saying something. It's about also doing something. And then um, skip down to verse 24, and we'll read this last parable here in this Sermon on the Mount, 24 through 27. This one, you probably have heard the parable of the two foundations. Uh, Verse 24 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them And the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Well, this passage is not saying that you can either anchor your life to Christ, the rock, or you can anchor your life to the world, the sand. And when the storms of life come, the life that is anchored to Christ will stand, and the life that is anchored to the world will collapse and fall. Now, there is some truth in that, but that is not what this passage is saying. And I want to be clear. It's not that what I just said there was false, but I don't believe that that's what this passage is primarily referring to. The key to this passage is found right at the beginning, where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. In other words, he who hears and does or hears and obeys. And conversely, he says in verse 26, everyone who hears these words and does not act. That's just like what James is saying back there in James 1, where he says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This passage is saying that the one who hears And obeys is real and authentic, and his profession and his life will be tested and will be proven to be real. The one who hears only is a fake, and when the testing comes, their false profession will be evident. So that brings up a question then what is this testing? What is the great fall of the house that Jesus is speaking of here in this parable? I believe it's when the Lord returns and it's the judgment. That is the real test. When those who have been merely hearers of the word hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. That is a great fall. When you've staked your your eternal destiny on the fact that you know something, but you're not walking in obedience to it. You're not obeying it. But conversely, think of this, what a wonderful thing to hear on the day of judgment. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So you see here this idea of these foundations is based on the the thought that the one who is hearing and is doing is on solid ground. There's obedience. It's real. It's authentic. That will be proven in the end to be real. But the one who just has the facade, you know, you can build a sandcastle. It looks really pretty. But what happens when there's any wind or any water that comes up to it? It collapses, and that's the way it's going to be on the Day of Judgment. We're going to see those who have only professed but have not lived. Their life will be shown to not be real. Well, the last one I want to look at is in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verses 27 and 28. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This really is both amazing and encouraging. Who would we say would be the most blessed of anybody that we've read in scripture? Surely we would think about those who walked with Jesus on this earth, the disciples, right? They they walked with him, they spoke with him, they saw him perform miracles. They heard these amazing things that he was telling. They, they actually got to see him interact. You know, we, we get to read what he said and what he did. But they got to see those interactions that you probably can't describe in Scripture. But you, to see Jesus just interacting with people would be amazing. We would say, yeah, those guys were blessed. Or what about being the mother of Jesus She was privileged enough to be the virgin mother of the Savior. She cared for and raised the Messiah. You know, every mother is privileged to be able to care for their children. But how amazing to be the mother of the Son of God. But what does Jesus say here? He says, you know, he's not denying that Mary was blessed. But he's saying there is something, someone, who is much more blessed than that. The one who hears the word of God and obeys it, that's the one who's really blessed. And that is why I say it's both amazing and encouraging, because that means that you and I, if we are hearing and obeying the word of God, according to this here, we are in a special category of blessing from God. To be able to be ones who are walking in obedience to the word. So that's just four passages of scripture that I feel like kind of highlight this this same idea that we see in James about the, the common theme about true Christianity is hearing and obeying, not just this intellectual knowledge of God, but in actual putting it into practice and in obeying what he says. Well, A valid question might come up at this point, and that is, is this a works mentality? I thought that scripture taught that we are saved by faith alone apart from any works. Well, scripture is very clear. We are not saved by any working of our own. That is abundantly clear in scripture. A few passages on this. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul, very clear on that. And then again, Paul in Romans 3:20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And then he goes on in verse 28 in Romans 3 and says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then finally, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's very clear. We are not saved by any working of our own. No good works are going to save us no one can earn their salvation. The work for our salvation has already been done on the cross. We are saved by believing in the finished work of Christ. And think about this. When the Philippian jailer came to Paul and Silas and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas didn't respond with, Go and do this list of good works, and then you'll be saved. They didn't even point him to the law of Moses and say, follow these commandments and then you will be saved. Rather, they pointed him to Christ and said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So then, with that in mind, what is the place of works in the Christian's life? Works are never the means of our salvation. In other words, we're not saved by works, but they are the evidence of salvation. And James is very clear on this, and if you'll turn back, we're going to look at uh, another passage in James, James chapter 2, that I think highlights this very idea. So James 2... It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I will take the time to read it. Verses 14 through the end of the chapter. So James 2, verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, this passage may seem contradictory to some of the passages we looked at earlier. Um, Dick gave a very helpful message on this passage back in 2014. And I would encourage anyone, if, if this passage causes any confusion for you, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's still on our, um, on our sermon site. You can look that up in the James series that Dick gave. But one of the things that Dick mentioned in that message is how James and Paul use some of the same words like justified and works, but they use them in different ways. When Paul says we are justified by faith, he means we are declared righteous. When James uses the word justified, He means to be shown to be righteous or proved to be righteous. So when James says here in verse 24 that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, he doesn't mean that declared righteous in the sense of saved by those works, but rather those works prove him to be righteous. They prove him to be authentic, He is not saved by those works, but his faith is proven by those works. Also, when Paul spoke of the works, he was referring to keeping the law as a means of salvation, and that's why he so oftentimes railed against this idea of works. But when James speaks of works, he is referring to Christ-like living. And you see, there's a very big difference between those two ideas, using the same word but using them in different ways. And that's why we we do need to dig in and study this a little bit. So what James is emphasizing here is that real, genuine faith will always result in obedience to the word. If a person says that they have faith, but there is no evidence of obedience to the word in their life, then their profession of faith is false. Faith and works are very closely related in the Christian life. We are saved by faith so that we might walk in obedience to the word. The evidence of life in a tree, if you think about it, a tree outside, the evidence of life is that it bears fruit. The fruit does not cause the tree to have life, right? You don't look at that apple and say that apple is giving life to that tree. No. The apple, the fruit, is evidence that the tree already has life. And that's what we need to to keep clear in our minds. Works is not salvation, but works is an evidence that God has done a real work In a person's life. So, what James is speaking against is a false profession where a person says that they believe, but yet they don't walk in obedience. And that kind of profession is a sham and a lie. Not everyone, we read this already, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. So one final thought here before we actually look at a few of these verses in James 1. And that is in the form of a question here. Is obedience to the word organic? Is bearing fruit organic? And in other words, does it just naturally happen? And to that I would say yes. If there is true life, then there will be fruit. If there is true spiritual life, then there will be obedience to the word. So we could say, yes, uh, obedience to the word is organic. But then the follow-up question to that is, is obedience to the word a conscious, intentional act? Does the Christian work and strive and make conscious choices To be obedient to the word? Or is it just kind of this passive thing that it just happens? You don't really try and do anything, it just happens. Well, no, there is work involved. We do strive to obey. So, in actuality, obedience to the word is both a natural result of the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, and it is a result of the believer consciously striving to put off sin, and to follow Christ's commands. And we see this same idea in Philippians 2 when Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in that passage there in Philippians 2, you see both ideas. We are instructed to work out Our salvation, meaning that we have to work and strive. There's effort required. But also we see in that passage in Philippians that God is the one who is at work in us. He is molding us and shaping us into his likeness. Why do we have a desire to put off sin? Think about that. Why does a Christian have a desire to cut off sin from their life? Because God has put that desire in your heart. See, that's the organic life in you, to have the desire. And then he gives you the ability by his spirit to be able to cut off your right arm, to pluck out your eye and throw it from you. That is the physical putting to death the deeds of the body, but God is the one who works in you that desire. So as we look at this passage here in James, keep this in mind. It is a contrast between true Christianity and false religion, but it's also an encouragement and an exhortation for us to be doers of the word. Now I've spent a lot more time, honestly, kind of leading into this than we're actually going to spend looking at this, but I feel like this really helps us to understand when we're talking about being a doer of the word. This is not just this works mentality. I just grit your teeth and go out and do it. We need to understand the foundation of this. So if you're still in James, go ahead and turn uh, back to chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 22. And verse 22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So as we said already, the previous verses have dealt with the receiving of the word, and now James transitions to a proper response to the word. If we have been quick to hear the word, and if we have received the word in humility, what should the result be? What is the next exhortation? Obey the word. Be a doer of the Word. There is no greater mark of a Christian than that they are obedient to the Word of God. Do you want to know if someone is truly a follower of Christ? Do they listen, receive, and practice the Word? All three of those things need to be present in the life of a Christian. If so, then they are true disciples of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. What did Jesus mean when he said, continue in my word? And I believe he means continue walking in obedience to his word. God's word will always affect our life and our actions. There is always application for his word. Think about this. How many of Paul's epistles are structured with doctrine first, followed by application, right? And by doctrine, you might think of it as teaching of the word, followed by application of the word or response to the word. There is no place in the Christian life for theological head knowledge that is void of practice in the believer's life. That is, that's is—that's a foreign concept in the Bible. God's word is meant to instruct us and to be obeyed. It's not just a head knowledge thing. It's to be put into practice in our life. Well, the second part of verse 22 here says, not merely hearers, delude themselves. And by delude, I think that's the same idea as deceive themselves. What is the result of hearing truth and not practicing it? One result is that you begin to feel comfortable with all the truth you know. And as you begin to get comfortable with just knowing the truth, you begin to deceive yourself into thinking that knowing is equal to doing. And at first, maybe your conscience speaks up and convicts you about the lack of reality in your life. But if in pride, the truth is not able to penetrate and implant in your heart, like we talked about earlier, then you will excuse the sin away. And pretty soon, the conscience will be seared and you will be deceived, deceived into thinking that your knowledge of God's word is enough. Or that God is pleased with you because you know the word. That's deception. To think that because I have this knowledge, I must be pleasing to God. Um, Some of you have read some of the books by Paul David Tripp. And this is one that someone had um, suggested to me to read. Um, This book is actually written. It's called Dangerous Calling. It's actually written to pastors But this particular passage here that I'm going to read applies to all of us. And this is what he says. Sin is deceptive, and think with me about who it deceives first. I have no difficulty recognizing the sin of the people around me, but I can be quite unprepared when my sin is pointed out. Sin deceives ten out of ten people reading this book. But it is not enough even to say that. There is more that needs to be said. It needs to be noted that spiritual blindness is not like physical blindness. When you are physically blind, you know that you are blind, and you do things to compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are blind to their own blindness. They are blind, but they think that they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of him than he does. He thinks he sees and is unaware of the powerfully important things in his heart that he absolutely does not see at all. That's a really good description of spiritual blindness. And that can be the result, not all spiritual blindness is is true of this, but it can be the result of not practicing the word, not obeying the word. Hearing it, but not obeying it, leads to spiritual blindness. Well, I have a couple of analogies that will hopefully show what hearing only is like. And the first is, hearing only is like a doctor who continues to read all the medical journals and studies to see what the latest treatments and medication regimens are, but then doesn't put it into practice um, anything that he's studied. So the question is, why spend the time studying about the latest and greatest in medicine if you're not going to implement it into your medical practice? What good is it if he advertises that I've gone to the cutting-edge conference this year in the last 10 years, but yet he hasn't changed anything in his medical practice since the time he got out of medical school? You would say that's folly, right? It's foolishness. Here you're studying all this stuff, but you're not putting any of it into practice. That's foolishness. Well, another analogy, and this was one that Andrew Turner shared with me, it's like a father who tells his kids to go clean their room, and the kids hear their father and even memorize what their father said. They might even look at the sentence structure and break it down, you know, the verb, what's the verb tense, and what's the, what's the noun pointing to here. They really study what their father said. But if all they did was study their father's command and not do what he said, then in reality they've disobeyed their father. Is the father pleased with all the memorizing and all the studying? Not if it isn't accompanied by obedience to the command, right? The true um, way the, the the thing that is most pleasing to the father is that there is actual obedience to the word, not just a studying and a listening to it. Jesus says this in John 14, if you love me, you'll read your Bible, right? If you love me, you'll memorize scripture. That's not what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, in uh, verse 21, John fourteen twenty-one, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. How easily we can begin thinking that knowing all about God's word is an evidence of love for God. But Jesus clearly says that the one who keeps the commandments is the one who loves God. And by keeping the commandments, the idea there is they're a doer of the word. When they read the word and see what God says, then they seek to put it into practice in their own life. That's what being a doer of the word is, um, I listened to a message by John MacArthur on this passage, and he had another really helpful analogy and this I just typed up the quote here: he says, "The word for hearer in this verse in James one twenty two is the ancient term for auditors and um, MacArthur has at, at his church there, they have a college and a seminary, and he says at the master's college and the master's seminary, we have people who show up and they want to audit a class. You know what that means, right? That means you want to listen but not apply. It just means you don't want to do any of the work. You just want to sit there and listen. That's what auditing auditing a class. No credit is given, right? You just sit there and listen. You don't have to turn in any homework. You just sit there and listen. That's the the same word that is used here as far as being a hearer only and not a doer. Auditing, just listening. Well, I have a caution to share, and I'm speaking to myself first here. Be careful that you not think of someone else who needs to grow in this area man so-and-so sure needs to walk in more obedience to the word brethren this is a warning for each one of us we need to be doers of the word if we're not careful we will actually fall in this very area by hearing this and then thinking that others need to apply it in their life think about the Um, The parable there of the publican, the tax collector, and the Pharisee. The tax collector is beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the idea of doing, right? God's convicted him of sin, and he's repenting of his sin. The Pharisee is sitting and looking at, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. We need to be careful that that not be us here in hearing this message. We need to apply this in our life. We need to be doers of the word. So how do we fight against self-deception? We saw that there at the end of verse 22. uh, Not merely hearers who delude or deceive themselves. And the answer is very simple. We must obey the word. We must be doers of the word. The way that you will fight against deception from being a hearer only is by hearing and doing, or hearing and obeying. And it is oftentimes in the act of obedience to the word that the Lord begins to open our eyes and we see more and more areas of need or more areas of blindness. You can be totally blind to something, but then there's one thing that convicts you. I, I need to walk in obedience in this area. Then do that. Walk in obedience in that area. And as you're doing that, the Lord begins to open your eyes to more areas maybe where you need to walk in obedience. That's a mercy of the Lord when that happens. So take that first step. Is the Lord putting his finger on one thing in your life? Then obey it. Do it. Be a doer of the word. So how, what are some practical applications in our own life? And first off, going back to the last time, we need to start by saying this. We need to be quick to listen. Listen to the word. Read the word. Humble yourselves before God's word. So how can I obey God's word if I don't even know what he says So it kind of presupposes that we need to be in the word. We need to be studying the word so we know what God is saying. And that's done privately. That's done publicly or corporately in this setting where you're placing yourself under the teaching of God's word. But it's not a Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing where you're putting yourself before God's word. But humble yourselves Don't be like the hard, dry ground that is unable to receive the word implanted, but rather in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. And then second, seek to obey the word. Is God clearly telling you something in the word? Then immediately seek to obey it. And I say clearly telling you something, And by that I mean commands in scripture that we don't need to stop and pray about whether or not they apply to us. And there are are some things that you might need to stop and pray about. Such as, do you feel the Lord's calling you to move to be a missionary somewhere? You might want to stop and pray about that and seek some counsel. But is the Lord prompting you to love your neighbor? You don't need to stop and pray about that. You need to obey it. Because that's not a command to stop. And Lord, do you really mean me? Yes, that applies to every one of us. So here are just a few examples. And these are just random examples that I pulled out. Just to show us how we can take God's word and we can do this very thing of listen to it and then seek to obey it. So four examples here. First, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's Matthew 5:44. Maybe there's someone at work that is very difficult. Maybe you've really tried not to react in frustration towards them. And if so, praise the Lord for the help of not reacting in anger or reacting in frustration towards that difficult coworker. But it isn't saying this passage isn't saying just avoid the negative it tells us to pursue the positive, love them and pray for them. What is love like? Well, read Rome, or not Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13 for a good description of love. Are we seeking to act that way towards all people, even our enemies or even those that are difficult to get along with? There's one way that we can put into practice what God has said. Here's another one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6 1. This doesn't require any subjective guidance. God's word is very clear. You are to obey your parents. Children, if you're going to be a doer of the word, then this is a good place to start. Obey your parents. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 I would have no trouble practicing this if it said, In some things give thanks, or even in most things give thanks. But it says, In everything give thanks. Even the hard providences, the lost job, or the hard job, The rebellious child, the health trials, the loss of a loved one, everything, in everything, give thanks. And then, this is kind of the parallel of that, but almost the opposite of it. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is a hard one. Do all things without grumbling. What is grumbling? Complaining. That means, children, to walk in obedience to this verse, you need to not complain about doing your chores or doing your schoolwork or going to bed when your parents tell you to. If you're going to be a doer of the word and it says don't complain, then that means don't complain. But what about us adults? That means to walk in obedience to this verse, we need to not complain about going to work or paying our taxes or cleaning up the house or fixing the yard up or fixing the car for the fifth time this month. Or, and the list goes on and on and on, there are all kinds of things that we can begin to grumble and complain about in our heart. Maybe in our mouth towards our spouse or towards someone else, but certainly in our heart. Brethren, if we're going to be obedient to the word, then let's put this into practice. Bite your tongue when that complaining word comes out, And, and maybe even... In a family setting, we can have accountability with one another. Please help me. I don't want to be a complaining person. Well, then when that person begins to complain, it sounds like you're complaining. Let's grow in this area. We can help one another in this, but we need to be doers of the word. Well, James at the end of this passage gives us some exhortations in verse twenty-six and twenty-seven. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So there's one right there. Bridling the tongue. Being careful with what you say. Not saying things in a harsh way, in an angry way. So if we want to be a doer of the word, then let's let's be careful in what we say and how we say it. And then verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So here's a few other ways that we can be a doer of the word. And when he says visit orphans and widows in their distress, I think the best way to think of this is to be on the lookout for the most vulnerable around us. And certainly in that day and age, orphans and widows were some of the most vulnerable. Maybe it's a little different in your situation, but who are some of the most vulnerable that you know? Are you seeking to defend? Are you seeking to care for those who are most vulnerable? And then this idea of not be, or being unstained by the world. Man, that is broad, but meditate on that a little bit. Think about it. How is the world staining me? How is the world affecting me in such a way that is contrary to what the Bible says? We don't want to be that way. We want to be ones that are cleansed by God, cleansed by the word, and not going back into the world to just be stained again. So what is it? Is there some area in my life that I need to cut off? Is, are there things that I'm reading things that I'm watching, things that I'm listening to, or is it just the world's mindset, the world's mentality that creeps into my life that I need to fight against? What is it? I don't know, but meditate on that. What does it mean to be unstained by the world? Well, in closing then, do we walk in perfect obedience? No. There's always areas that we need growth in. But can we say that we are always seeking to obey the Lord? Are we always seeking to do what the Word says? If so, Jesus says this in Luke 11, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Right? We already looked at that one. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. So even if you're failing but you're seeking to walk in obedience to the Lord. Remember, you are in a category of blessing. Keep walking in that. May the Lord help us.